Good morning. And uh, it might surprise you, but I'm going to say Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Okay, now why are we saying Happy New Year, right? It's not, it's not January 1st. Well, the reality is that, that in Christianity, the church keeps time differently than the world. And we start our Christian year the first Sunday of Advent every year. So today, technically, I can say to you, Happy New Year, because we're beginning with this longing for the coming of Jesus. That, that's kind of the way every year we remember to tell the story that has changed the world. And, and this word Advent means coming. It's from the Latin word, it means coming. Uh, and it, it's a, a time of preparation, a way of slowing us down as we move toward the Christmas rush to kind of remember what it is that's really important. And we, we focus, we have themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. Uh, and, and, and like Jake said, you know, we, we are sending out emails every day. If you're not on that list and want to be, let us know, just to kind of make sure. How many times have you gone through Christmas and it's been so busy when it's over, you're like, I don't feel like I ever really slowed down long enough to celebrate the, the coming of Jesus. And so we, we start preparing a month ahead so that our hearts are ready to prepare. And so this, this uh, in our lectionary, we're in the book of Luke. So we're going to spend the next four Sundays kind of in the first two chapters of Luke. He does an amazing job in, uh, introducing us to the people around that first Christmas. Today we'll look at Zechariah. Next week we'll look at Mary's visit from the angel. The next week we'll look at the song Mary sings, the Magnificent. Uh, and then uh, the Sunday right before Christmas we'll do that traditional shepherds and angels, Luke 2, 1 to 20. And then the week after we'll talk about Simeon and Anna at the, at the temple. So we're going to work our way through the first two weeks of Luke, or the first two chapters of Luke, but we're going to start this week with Zechariah and um, the relative of Mary, his wife, Elizabeth. So I'm going to read in Luke chapter 1, we're going to read in two sections today, but I'm going to start with 5 to 25, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 57. So Luke 1, starting with verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now we'll slide over to verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after the father, Zechariah. But the mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all, those, all these things. Everyone who heard it wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, sometimes we forget to look at this particular text. It really is the other birth story of Christmas. And I mean, we, we may glance over it, but we're trying to hurry to that manger very often. But today, I, I want us to, to think about the birth of John the Baptist, the role of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and, and ultimately the song of praise that Zechariah sings, and talk about how it might apply to us, how it might help prepare us uh, to celebrate Christmas. Now, I want to start quickly by just focusing on the story and those involved in it, and from there we'll see what comes out of it to try to apply it to our lives. But, but when we, we start where God seems, God has this tendency in the Bible and he likes to use certain types of people. And, and he starts in this story with, with a faithful but barren couple. A faithful couple, right? It says he was a priest. Uh, she was a descendant of Aaron. Uh, I grew up in the southern United States. That would be like a pastor married to a pastor's daughter. Uh, th- this was the couple, right? The, 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 they, were, they were seen as faithful. It says they were righteous and just. Uh, literally, this observing the Lord's commandments uh, it would say an upright means a, they would go about their life completely in line with God's commands. And it also says that phrase, in the sight of God. They were righteous and blameless in the sight of God. This was not just something that was a good appearance, right? We can put forward a good appearance and not be righteous or blameless. Our hearts can be twisted. But, but in the sight of God, these people had a good heart. They were advanced in years. Did you notice how in our text it translates? He said, I'm an old man. And my wife is well along in years. He was a very wise husband, right? He, he chose his words very carefully, how he said those kind of things. But he said, and we've never had a child, right? That, 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 that barrenness, too, that not being able to have a child, very often in that culture was seen as, as a curse. It's almost like when you're saying there's this righteous, faithful couple, but they can't have a child. People will be saying, what is that? Why, why is God withholding a child when they're so faithful? What follows to that setting of this couple is, is literally a once-in-a-lifetime event. There were a lot of descendants of Levi, a lot of priests. And, and you notice in the text it says when his division was called up to serve, there were so many priests, it wasn't like you just had a group of priests that lived year-round at the temple in this time. There were actually 24 divisions in the tribe of Levi, and they would go up, and twice, twice a year, or 
yeah, two weeks a year, they would go up and do their turn in, in, the, uh, in the temple. And this was Zechariah's turn. So he, he lived a little bit away, probably had another job. But when his two weeks came up, if you remember, like a lot of you are familiar with like military reserves, how these people will train, they'll be ready, but they're not really uh, on, a, on a base. They, they go about their job, do their weekend training, but when the time comes, they're called into service. The same thing with these priests. And so this is his stint. He's in Jerusalem. He's doing the things um, that, that priests do for those two weeks. And then it says that the, the lots were cast... And according to the custom, and, and he had the chance to take in the incense. Twice a day, they would offer a sacrifice. After the sacrifice in the morning and the evening, the, the priest would go in and he would burn incense in the, in the first step in there, in, in the, not the most holy place, but in the holy place where the altar of incense was. And it was a, a really crucial moment in the liturgical worship of Judaism. All the people that were in the temple would gather in the courtyard. They would watch the, the, the priest who had this opportunity go in and burn the incense, and then they would pray while he was doing it. The, the visual image is as the incense went up to God, it was the prayers of his people going up to God. So, so it was such um, an honor to do this, to have the lots cast to you to get the chance to do it. You could only do it once in your life, literally. Zechariah would never be allowed to do this again. So it really is a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime event. And this angel appears, and Zechariah was terrified. Once again, I want to remind you that, that angels in the Bible did not look like Monica from Touched by an Angel. right? They didn't have this nice, soft glow behind their head. They were these otherworldly, powerful beings that spoke into the lives of the humans. And, and he, he gives a message. He says, your prayer has been heard. You'll have a son. Name him John, he says. He'll be a joy and a delight to both you and to others. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Once again, that phrase. Just as his parents were righteous and holy and blameless in the sight of the Lord, John will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's to be set apart. He's not to drink alcohol. It shows the importance of his calling. And he, he was going to be filled with the Spirit even before he was born, right? Since Pentecost, we know that all believers receive the Spirit of God. But what the angel's saying to Zechariah is your child in the womb will be filled with the Spirit. He'll bring many Jews back to the Lord their God, and he'll be a forerunner of the Messiah. The angel actually refers to two passages from Malachi that Zechariah would have known that talk about the messenger that's going to come uh, and prepare the way for the Messiah. Uh, it talked about uh, this messenger that will come and prepare for the way of the Lord in Malachi 3.1 and in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. It talks about this Elijah that will come back and turn the hearts of the parents to their children and bring the wisdom to those who have, been, have gone astray. So, so the angel is using this language from the prophets. Now, get this. It's been 400 years since they've heard anything from God. It's been quiet in between the Old and the New Testament. And all of a sudden, the angel shows up to Zechariah in the temple, and he's, he's giving this statement, this promise, referring to the prophetic. And, and Zechariah's got to realize he's talking about his son is going to be the one that's going to pave the way for the Messiah. It's quite an overwhelming moment, a once-in-a-lifetime event with a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-world-lifetime a announcement of the forerunner of the Messiah. And this is where I can identify with Zechariah, right? The guy's standing in front of an angel, and he says, how can this be true? 
How many of you have ever said, if God would just tell me, I'd know what to do. If he would just write it out and if he'd make it clear to me, well, here's an angel telling Zechariah this and he's doubting and that's kind of what I think. I, how do I know? How do I know? Look at verse 19. I love what, what Gabriel says. It's just, um, the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. Hello, exactly. I had a week at bas- had, an, had a moment at basketball practice this week. I just have to tell you this because you'll get a little flavor. Sarah will appreciate this. Um, I, I, there, there are a couple of rules at basketball practice, and the, the chief rule is I am the most important person in the room, uh, and I'm trying to instill that in in the youth of today. But sometimes they don't realize that, so I'm trying to tell them something, and a couple of the girls are over talking uh, on the sideline, and so I, I just quickly said. Um, can you guys look around? There are two people in this practice that are different than everybody else. Can you figure out who that is? And one girl pipes up and says, uh, it's you and Heather, the coaches. And I said, yes, we are very different than you are as the players. And that means when we talk, you shut up, right? And, and, and it worked. They, they were quiet after that. They did well, didn't they, Sarah? It wasn't Sarah talking. She would never do that to me, right? Sarah is very respectful. But, but I get that same sense. Gabriel's like, uh, I'm Gabriel. I'm the, I'm the angel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. You, you can believe me, Zechariah, right? It's that kind of moment. <laughs> and what I love about this, too, is Zechariah fails to believe initially, but even failure to believe gets used. I love this, right? It was used to help communicate. He goes out. He can't talk, which is his punishment, literally, because he didn't believe. But that's the one thing that lets people know that he actually had a vision, in there, that something big happened. Even his failure to believe gets used by God. That, man, that gives me hope. I love this about God, that even when we fail, even when we don't measure up, even when we doubt, God takes that and he uses even that for his honor and for his glory. One final thing that I love in this story here, God is planning to come in the flesh, Jesus, right? The incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, And he sends this guy, John the Baptist, to prepare the way. And there's this message that comes through John, right? When John's preaching, he's pretty heavy duty. He's kind of a wild guy. He wears uh, camel skin, you know, and eats locusts. He's out in the desert, and he's preaching, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a hard message. And and realize, it's like I say, it's been 400 years since they've heard from God. And what, what does God decide to name this guy? He decides that the first name he's going to give in 400 years. The guy that's going to lead the way for Jesus is going to be named John. And John means God is gracious. Isn't that beautiful? 400 years he's been quiet. And the first message could have been a name that means, I'm the coach here, shut up. <laughs> right? It could have been that. But, but, but the name he chooses is John, which says God is gracious. Even though he had a heavy message, even though it was a surprising name, you got that when they named him, right? It's usually the father that would pass on the name. He couldn't speak. So the community just decided Elizabeth doesn't have that power. She's the mom. Sorry, ladies. That's the way it was then. We've learned a little bit, hopefully. But uh, Elizabeth says, no, 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 his name's going to be John. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. You don't have any relatives named John. So rather than trusting her, they go to Zechariah, and he writes down, his name is John, much to their surprise. God wants that message to be communicated. God is gracious. And and God is gracious turned 
the situation and led to what you see next, which is the song that was inspired by the birth. If you look over at the end of chapter 1, verse 66, we'll read, or 67, we'll read this song that ends the chapter after he was born. When Zechariah could finally speak again, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. And what is this promise? Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And how's it going to happen? He says, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Now, Luke's kind of known for the songs. He has, he has three of them in the first couple chapters. He has Zechariah's song, he has Mary's song, he has a song that Simeon sings after Jesus is presented at the temple. This one, the church history's called it the Benedictus or the Praise Be, these, this song of Zechariah. And, and there's a lot in this song to, to focus on, we were lit the candle of hope, we decorated hope here, uh, to, to focus on the hope that God's bringing, a lot to be hopeful about. I, and there's three, I kind of alluded to them as I read, there's kind of three movements in his song. The first one, Zechariah starts by acknowledging where all hope starts. Remember we talked last week about Abraham's calling and it, the fact that who's going to do the work? It's God that actually is going to do the blessing through Abraham. He'll be the one that actually accomplishes what is promise. And the same theme surfaces here. Hope all starts with God. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and has redeemed them. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said to his holy prophets of long ago. He's the one that's done this. I'm holding this baby from my wife who was well along in years and childless. And, and an angel told me that this, this child is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And all he can do is say, praise be to God, because you've done something that we could never have done. 1 Peter 1.3 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, this hope that comes from John of the Messiah, Jesus, that's going to come, it, it all starts with this plan that God has had before time began. It all goes back to that promise made to Abraham that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. And this hope that comes from God, this hope is rooted in the promise. That's the next section of the, of the, 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 the song, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who, who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and, and to enable us to live before him without, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, back when the promise was given to God, he's like, 
he's like, I'll bless you, Abraham. And there's this idea of salvation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you're okay, Abraham. To rescue us from the hands of our enemies. I'm going to bless those who bless you and, and, and curse those who curse you, God says. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to rescue you. To enable us to serve him without fear. Man, how many of us grew up just misunderstanding and most of our service of God was out of fear? So we didn't want to mess up. I was driving around early this morning coming to the church and I listened to bluegrass instead of CNN and Fox now. It makes me a lot happier. But there was an old bluegrass song and it was horrible because it was just saying, you know, every single thing you do that might be fun is S-I-N. It's going to be sin and God's going to get you for it. And, and I thought, you know what? I can appreciate wanting to avoid sin, but most of, most of what we've used to motivate ourselves is fear. And, and what, what John the Baptist and Jesus have come to bring is a way of serving God without fear, knowing that he can even recycle our failures. And this is foundational, this, this promise, right? God has promised, and we're seeing, he says, you know, it, the word that the prophets gave long ago, I'm seeing, I'm holding it right here in my hand, says Zechariah. And our lives have to flow out of this, out of a trust that God will do what he said he will do. God has promised to us that he will conform us to the image of Jesus. He will make you look like Jesus. That's what he's doing in your life. That's his promise. He's promised to work all things together for good to those who love him. He's promised that. He's promised to make all things new. And, and, and a huge part of what we have to do is to remember and hold on to that promise. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. One other thing that we see in the song that I like, hope flows through flesh and bone. Hope comes through a human being. This little baby is flesh and blood and this is where the hope is coming through. That's the way God works. He says in verse 76, I can just see Zechariah singing this song of praise, holding his son and saying, and you, my child, it's you. You're embodying the hope that God promised a couple thousand years ago. And he brings hope to the world. That's what God does through flesh and bone, through you and through me. Colossians 1.27, Paul's writing about this this mystery, this great thing that God is doing. And he says, to them, the Gentiles, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You become this embodied hope, this flesh and bone that carries hope around everywhere you go. So how do we participate with that? How do we live that out? Especially in times like these when hope seems a bit hard to find. How do we do that? How can we make sure that we're living hopefully as we wait? Because the promise has not been fully fulfilled, right? It's, it's not, everything has not been made new. We do not look like Jesus yet. We can't see how everything's working out for the good for those who love him. So how do we live hopefully as we wait and cultivate that into Advent? Well, once the hope arrives, right? Once the hope gets here, it's really easy to be hopeful. It's not hopeful anymore. Paul writes in Romans 8, for if in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what we already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So how do we do that? How do we hope for the future? And not just hope in our heads, but hope 
in our bodies and through our bodies out to the people around us? How do we walk through a broken world that seems to crush people's hope at every turn? Well, there's, there's a few things I'll, I'll wrap up with. One, and this sounds a lot like last week. I promise I'm not recycling. It's just I think it's in the text, and maybe we need to hear it. To live hopefully now while we wait, we have to cling to the promise and not your understanding. We have to cling to the promise and not your understanding. Augustine, in, in, I've updated his English language. He didn't actually speak English, but I've updated the, the Middle Ages translation. He said, understanding is the reward of faith. So don't seek to understand in order to believe, but believe so that you can understand, right? Very often we want to take a step when we fully understand, when we know. And, and what, what this passage is saying, we have to cling to the promise even when we don't understand. We have to believe ahead of time that God will be faithful. Zechariah sees this birth of his son as a fulfillment of this promise they've been waiting almost 2,000 years to come true. And, and faith, it really is uh, to hold on to what we don't know. It says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not yet see. We, we've got to cling to the promise, right? Cling to the promise and not our understanding. I don't, you know what? There's so many times in life, if we wait until we figure out how it's all going to work, it's never going to work. <laughs> we're never going to get there. Often when we have to make sacrifices for others and we're afraid of what's going to come of that, we're not going to know the answer. We have to cling to the promise that God can use this instead of our understanding. You know, there's, there's a whole world that we cannot see with our eyes going on. There's a whole, God is at work in ways that we can't even understand. Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to what used to be Burma, now Myanmar, back in the early 1800s, um, his, he was a passionate missionary. Uh, and at one point, he was in prison in Burma. He had 32 pounds of shackles on his hands and his feet. And he was, he was lashed to a, a bamboo pole. And one of the other prisoners in the jail was making fun of him. And he said to Judson, he said, so what are the prospects for the heathen in Burma now? What are the prospects? How do you feel about your prospects? And Judson said, the prospects are as bright as the promises of God. I love that, right? The prospects are as bright as the promise. It doesn't matter where I am, he says. I don't have to understand this. It's not me that's carrying the prospects. We have to cling to the promise and not our understanding. And part of this is learning to let your limitations cultivate hope within you. Let your limitations cultivate hope within you. Far too often, we focus more on our mistakes and our failures than the promises of God or our inability, things we can't do. Zechariah blew it. He had an angel standing in front of him, and then he said, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Well, I don't know how much more proof you're going to get, Zechariah. But that left him unable to speak. But you know what? That very limitation that he was given, his own doubt and the result of it, was something that I'm sure inspired that fuel for hope. Every day he woke up and couldn't talk, he remembered that visit from the angel. He remembered that promise. And all of a sudden, one day, his wife's pregnant. He's like, what? Well, he didn't say, he's like, he couldn't say anything, right? But he's, he's and, and, and that, even that limitation became this thing that could inspire hope within him, 
to remind him, right? And we often need to let our limitations, our failures, our brokenness inspire hope within us that one day things will be made new. Romans 12, 12, I love this little, I'm in my prayer time with it every day. Be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and be faithful in prayer. Nowhere does it say figure it all out in that verse. (laughs) Figure it all out, Jeff, and then you can be joyful in hope. No, it just says be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. One more basketball story. I'm sorry, season's gearing up, and I'm getting sermon material every practice. So We had our 5K run um, that I do with the team every year. Some of them did really well. Some of them didn't do so well. One girl that didn't do so well uh, was, was, after it was over, was crying. That's what happens when you coach basketball for girls. You do get tears. Guys' teams, you don't always get that. Girls' teams, you always get that. That's great. I like coaching girls way better than guys. Um, But anyway, she's crying, and I'm like, what's the matter? And she's like, I'm just so disappointed in myself. And she talked about a game two years ago where we lost the chance to go to provincials. She she played a great game, but she fouled out at the end. And now she said, you know, I I could have been working up to this 5K run. I could have been in better shape. And I'm just not. I'm so disappointed in myself. And I said to her, I said, well, okay. This is where you are. All that's true. You could have been in better shape. But you know what? You can, you can fixate on your failure and let it destroy you. Or you can fixate on the hunger that cultivates in you to work from this point on. And, and I think that's a key in our Christian life. Far too often we fixate on what we can't do or where we failed. And, and there's this condemning voice. Right? It says, oh, you blew it again. And, and yes, we did. I've blown it today. I blew it. Everybody blows it every single day. But, but the beauty of clinging to the promise and not your understanding is, is that you can let your limitations and your failures actually fuel your desire for things to be made right. Oh, I can't wait for the day when I don't fail. I can't wait for the day when I can actually live like Jesus every day. Let that become a, a, a burning sense in you that, that inspires hope, that makes you hungry for hope. None of us will do this without mistakes. But those mistakes can consume and destroy you, or they can fuel your hope that one day everything will be made new. It's all in the way you look at them. And it's important that we get this, because today, just like at the birth of John the Baptist, you have to remember that hope flows through humans. God works through me and you. He uses people. Even in Luke 10, this isn't going to be on the screen, But he sends out 72 disciples. This is what he says to them. The harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Guys, he's saying, guys, pray that God would send out workers. And then guess what the next thing he says is? Go. I'm sending you out like like sheep among wolves. (laughs) Even then, pray for for workers. Now be those workers. See, hope and, and what God wants to do always works through human flesh and bone, through us. There was a minister that got up one time at his church and he said, I've got, I've got good news and bad news. He says, the good news is we have enough money to fix the leak in the roof at the church building. The bad news is it's in your pockets. <laughs> and, I mean, that's, that's not necessarily bad news to, uh, here at our church because we don't do that. But, but the good news, you know, uh, going through last week, right? The last week when we went through all the, the sheltering people, right? The good news we learn 
is that we have space and resources enough in our world to take care of people who need it. The bad news is we've got to decide we're willing to share it. Right? The hope comes through humans. That's the way God wants to work. A, a verse that should be very prominent in our town, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That this hope should come out of our lives. That's who he's sending into the world is you and I. Remember that promise to Abraham, all the nations in the earth will be blessed by, through you. That's, that's, we're, we're a part of that. That's our calling. One of the things that surprised me the most about the week we sheltered people was as I read through comments online, um, I, well, and also people that would come and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not Baptist. Can I stay here? It's like, well, half the people here on Sunday morning aren't Baptist either. So, uh, yes, you can. Or, you know, I had people at the door saying, well, I'm not very religious. Can I just come in and use your washroom? Yeah. Yeah, you sure can. You bet. You can sleep here. You can have some food. And and even uh, one Facebook post I read, this lady was just blown away because guess what? At the Baptist church, they're letting people of all faiths sleep in their church. I was like, man, we let some of those guys in. I was trying my hardest to keep those other faiths out. But you know what? What what struck me about that is I reflected this week on John, the name of the first person God named in the New Testament is God is gracious. I thought, what does Christian come to mean in our world? And it brought me to a, a prayer for us and for Christians all over the world, a prayer that I hope you'll join me in through Advent. May our name clearly communicate God. Now it says in Acts 11.36, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It's the first time they had the name. Now scholars will tell you that that was a term of derision. It was probably not a compliment. Christ followers, you know, uh, because Messiah means anointed one. It had this kind of, you know, th those are the oily ones. But the reality is over time, Christians came to mean something beautiful in the Roman Empire. It came to mean those are the people that care and love and serve. And when pandemics hit, those are the people that risked their lives to help others. But today it's often become associated with a political ideology or kind of some sense of arrogant moral condescension. Christian. I mean, I, I don't think we're trying to do that, but if, if the world is surprised when we will let people of other denominations and faith traditions or no faith tradition at all sleep in our church when they're stuck in our town. If the world is surprised by that, we've done a bad job communicating what it means to be a Christian. One of my favorite online illustrations I've ever found is a picture of this dog. Three legs, blind in one eye, missing a right ear, tail broken, recently castrated, answers to the name of Lucky. <laughs> right, that is not a lucky dog, let me tell you. And, and it, 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 we laugh because Lucky doesn't fit the actual experience of the dog. And I, I wonder, what if there was a thing that said Christian, arrogant, prideful, exclusive, judgmental, and answers to the name of Christian? A lot of people are hearing that. I, and I know we don't mean, that's not our desire, to. but I think we need to pray that our name, whatever it may be, Christian, Baptist, whatever they want to call us, will clearly communicate who God is. In this Advent season of waiting, we have to remember that when God wanted to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, he sent a guy named God is gracious. That was what God wanted to be said. 
And then later, he would send himself in human flesh named Jesus, which means God is salvation. God saves. And we live in a world that is heavy with waiting, heavy with brokenness, heavy with fear. And I I guess my prayer is that our name and the actions of all of us, this flesh and bone who's attached to our name, will clearly communicate who God is to the world around us. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you that even in the presence of an angel in the holy place in the temple, he's doubting, and yet you don't not use him. You actually turn that into something that, that strengthens his testimony. And God, we, we want to believe. We want to cling to the promise even when we don't understand. We want to live in ways that just call us to step forward in faith even when we don't see the outcome. And ultimately, God, we want to represent you clearly. We want the name Christian or Christ follower or whatever we we refer to ourselves as. We want it to clearly communicate through our actions who you are to the world around us. And, And help us as a people in this town to be agents of hope. Help us to reach into situations where there's brokenness and pain and speak the word, God is gracious. God is salvation. Help us very tangibly to serve in ways that will welcome the world to know you, the hope of the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when I came here that Sunday night at 10, a little after 10, and power was off everywhere, and I've always always joked we should be Catholic because we'd have more candles, but we did have four Advent candles that Cindy had already bought in that back room, bigger than these, because these are new ones. We had four white pillar candles. And uh, the funny thing was, I thought, what are we going to do? How are people even going to see? I took those four candles, candle of love, hope, peace, and joy, and I put one there and one in front and one there and one on a table in the middle, and you could see in the sanctuary. It was really awesome. You could see your way around. You knew you weren't going to lie down on some top of somebody. And I just thought, isn't that neat that those four little candles can take a completely dark place and make it usable? And your, your one little candle going out into the world, you can make a difference because it's not, it's not your ability that you're clinging to, it's the promise. So let's hear this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.